Sometimes it's inevitable to give in Sometimes that's the only way to begin Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in Tokyo. And with me, as always, in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and we're forever tormented by the silly liquor laws that plague our home country, the United States of America. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades and are excited to share them with you through this podcast. Steven, how you doing? I'm doing well, as always, Christopher. Uh, this is probably our first emergency podcast since the Japanese whiskey labeling standards were announced in early 2021. Right. I don't know if it's really an emergency, but it is breaking news in a sense. That episode, the labeling standards change, led us to reshuffle our recording schedule and make episode seven all about the new standards and episode eight as a reflection on what it really means to be authentic whiskey. And so... Obviously, go back and listen to those episodes if you're interested. But this is a new standard that's been announced, and this time it's going partway to righting a wrong, in a way. What happened, Christopher? Yeah, it is going. It is kind of a partial step, isn't it? The let's we got to travel back to 2002, actually, which is the year I moved to Japan, as it happens. And New York State back then made it legal for establishments with beer and wine licenses or what we'll call soft licenses to start selling Korean soju. This, of course, followed the famous 1998 California law that allowed soju to be sold on beer and wine licenses in that state. Now, how these laws differed is that in California, it didn't really matter where this, the soju, quote unquote, was made so long as it was imported. And in New York, they went a step further. The soju actually had to be made in Korea. Uh, anyway, sorry, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Can you take us back to the beginning of all this, please? Sure, sure. Happy to. Uh, you know, we're talking about America here. And America has had a long and difficult relationship with beverage alcohol. Unlike many European countries where drinking with a meal has been socially acceptable for centuries... In the United States, we actually tried to outlaw the sale, distribution, and consumption of alcohol. The 18th Amendment in the U.S. Constitution made alcohol illegal as of January 17, 1920, and it wasn't until 1933 that the 21st Amendment repealed prohibition. That's just mind-boggling to me that that was less than a century ago. Yeah, I know. So a century ago, we would have been in year three, like two and a half years into prohibition, and that's just... Uh, crazy to imagine the beginning of the roaring 20s, right? That's right. I mean, it was such a vibrant time in the United States. And then the the uh, teetotalers just, you know, the uh, temperance movement just got, gained so much power politically that they ended up getting Congress to create an amendment. I mean, we almost never make amendments anymore <laughs> to the US Constitution. And yet they were able right. to do one to outlaw alcohol. So just crazy. Um, but anyway, in the wake of prohibition, Individual states had to decide how to standardize the sale of alcohol, and federal regulations gave some guidance, but each state was able to set their own laws on manufacturing, distribution, and sales. And the temperance movement might have lost the national fight with the repeal with the 21st Amendment, but they still had influence at the state and local level. So even today, you have dry counties in some parts of the U.S. where it is illegal to sell alcohol. Right. In, in the 21st century, that's just a little bit in, 
incredible to me. I but know. What, what many states ended up settling on is this concept of a soft license and a hard license or these two tiers of alcohol licensing. Right. And a soft license, as I said before, is referring to when we are selling beer and wine. That's a beer and wine license, essentially. Basically, brewed or fermented beverages can be sold under the soft licenses. And this usually includes Japanese sake as well. And, you know, hard liquor license holders can sell basically anything that a bar will sell. It's basically anything that's available in the States for sale. The gray area, of course, is those low proof spirits and those super high proof brewed beverages. For example, some ice beers can get well up into the, the double digits. We're talking north of 30% ABV. And then you have, you know, li spirit based liqueurs and, and so on and so forth, like um, Aperol, for instance, from Italy, that's only like 11% ABV. So we're talking lower alcohol content than most wine that's served in restaurants. It's really kind of a wishy-washy um, exercise altogether. That's right. It's it's really this distinction between brewed beverages and distilled beverages. And I guess it makes sense historically because distilled alcohols could kill you. We've talked about in our cuts episode about how the stuff that's in the heads, the four shots basically are like poison, right? It's it's methanol mm -hmm. and stuff that'll make you go blind or kill you. So kind of, from that perspective, it made sense. But we've evolved so much in that in our regulatory bodies, like how the FDA or the TTB approves products for sale in the US and that sort of thing. There's a lot more guardrails in place for sake alcohol production. Right, right. And also, I guess another way that it made sense is that really from prohibition right up until very recently, most Americans would drink brewed beverages with meals, right? It would be wine or beer. That's what you usually would have with food. But now things are moving toward cocktails and other, other spirits-based drinks that would be uh, more appealing. Restaurants around the country really didn't feel they needed to have a full bar program necessarily. They might have been happy with a beer and wine license. But I guess what led to the, the, the laws that you mentioned earlier is the state-level laws is that throughout the 1970s, 80s, and even into the 90s, more and more Korean and Japanese restaurants started opening up. I mean, for example, Benihana comes to mind, the, the teppanyaki restaurant that was all over the country for a while. So I think that created in some ways an impetus for, for this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, as everyone knows, both Korean and Japanese culinary cultures involve a lot of enjoying spirits in, while eating, while dining. So spirits and, and food are just absolutely as intertwined as we might think that wine or craft beer are in other parts of the world. I mean, I, when I first moved to Korea back in 2000, I remember those green bottles being everywhere. It was those little green bottles were just a part of every single dining experience, save for maybe breakfast, although I can't speak for everyone in the country. <laughs> um, and it was, it was as important uh, a piece on the table as water or whatever else you were washing um, things down with. It really is, it, it, it's impossible to overstate the centrality of that drink to the food and dining culture there. That's right. And it really goes both ways. When I was first making Japanese friends in New York and they'd invite me out for a drink, I had the mindset of an American invitation to go out for drinks. It meant meet at a bar, have some drinks. You might have peanuts or popcorn or something, but basically it was going to be a liquid heavy experience. And so I'd have dinner before and I'd go meet them and then they'd order a bunch of food. Right. right? So the otsumami concept, the, the basically drinking snacks uh, that are enjoyed with, with uh, 
in a Japanese drinking experience is, is very much part and parcel to the culture. And so, and again, spirits are a big part of that. You know, shochu outsells sake in Japan. So we really are talking about a, a huge part of the, of the drinking experience here. Absolutely. Yeah. But we are kind of getting a little bit off track here. We were talking about liquor law. So let's go back. Um, let's go back to the beginning here. And why, why don't we go big first? Let's start with the TTB. This government entity was established in the US in 2003. And it's a federal agency that approves both domestic and imported alcohols for legal sale in the United States. And as part of that process, they categorize each product into, well, one of many, many baskets. Um, whiskey, gin, let's see, brandy, tequila, rum, vodka. Those are all different baskets, I guess, different categories. And the list just goes on and on and on. It does. And yet it doesn't. It's a really, really weird document to read because the TTB recognizes over 40 subcategories of whiskey, more than a dozen categories of brandy. And yet rum is rum and cachaça. Hmm. There's no subcategorization of rum based on whether or not there's sugar added, whether it was used made using a pot still or a column still, any of those things, which actually are distinctions in the whiskey uh, right. categories. And then like, for example, Aquavit is okay, but Geneva is not recognized. And yet they're basically neighboring spirits traditions. Uh, Baiju, no. Soju, no. Shochu, no. Awamori, no. So it's really highly European tradition biased. And the TTB has the authority to add new categories. It's they simply, do. A, it's just a change for them. It's, it's pretty simple. And yet, since their founding nearly two decades ago, they've only added one spirit, and that was Kashasa. Well, Kisco, Uzo, and Aquavit were all reclassified. So they were first in one category and got, got moved to their own categories. And we got close there once, didn't we, to making some changes, right? In 2018, it seemed for just a second like they were entertaining re-basketizing, re-categorizing a lot of stuff, even accepting new baskets. But that entire conversation got squashed by larger financial concerns, I guess is a polite way to put it. Um, you know, basically, there were a lot of industry lobbyists who were paid to make sure that no new red tape was added to the system. And also, this just meant new competition. New categories means more competition. And basically, who gets screwed? The consumer. Yeah, that's fair. Well, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. But we really need to discuss the ramifications of all of these silly rules. Sure. I mean, it's really inherently political right now. The Cachaça was recognized in 2012 after a trade agreement was signed with Brazil in which Brazil agreed to recognize Tennessee sour mash and Kentucky bourbon as uniquely American products. And in exchange, uh, the United States recognized cachaça as a unique uh, Brazilian style of alcohol. Right. And some other spirits traditions have been offered consideration if their home nations will offer similar concessions to American goods. So it really yeah, see, is a carrot stick sort of thing. Right. And so this is all kind of confusing to me because last time I checked, Japan and South Korea were two of America's best trading partners in Asia, if not best allies in the entire world. So what gives? Yeah, I guess that particular carrot wasn't really needed for those relationships. Now, I know that the Japanese government recently has started to push for more recognition of shochu overseas. And so maybe that will lead to some uh, negotiation in, in the next trade deal. But who knows? That's probably several years away. 
Yeah, basically all we're asking is allow us to identify Japanese shochu as such on the label and not have to, you know, at least one thing that's required, and this is why this kind of ticks Stephen and I off, because we spend a lot of our time thinking about label design. And we have to waste a lot of space on the front label describing all of the ingredients. I have no problem with listing ingredients, but does it really have to go on the front label? I mean, sure. the, the ingredients in a lot of other products, uh, food and beverage products, are, are allowed to be on the back or on the side. I don't know. Anyway, um, we're just asking for the recognition that these drinks deserve. And no, they should not be recognized as the same thing as soju. Let's just, I know I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat that horse until it don't run no more. Um, <laughs> so we've been talking for a while already. And, and besides some dysfunctional federal agency bananas, um, we've, we haven't really come to the silly laws that inspired this episode. So let's shift gears again. We've mentioned them, of course. Uh, California in 98 passed a law allowing soju to be sold with a beer and wine license. The law was pretty loosely, vaguely, wishy-washily written, only stating that soju had to be uh, 24% alcohol or less and had to be imported. Yeah, let's break that down for a minute. I mean, imported soju. But as we just mentioned, the TTB doesn't recognize soju as a spirits category. So essentially, anything could be bottled at 24% ABV, labeled as soju, imported to California, and sold under a soft license. And that is exactly what some Japanese shochu makers did and have been doing since the turn of the century. And this has screwed so much stuff up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this short. But basically, ladies and gentlemen, the reason why nobody in America understands the difference between shochu and soju is because of this labeling loophole in California state that some of, especially the larger shochu makers, have been taking advantage of for about 20 years now. They dilute their product a little bit further from 25 usually down to 24. 24% ABV is not, it doesn't happen here in Japan. We don't see that, right? We do 90, not, no, not at all. Yeah, almost all shochu is bottled at 25. Down south, granted, in Oita and Miyazaki, down there, you do occasionally see 20%, which is a whole nother story. That's a historical thing. That, has a, that actually has a good reason behind it. Um, 24 in California does not, is not a good reason. It doesn't make any sense. There's very little difference between 24 and 25 that affects the, my reaction to the New York law as well. But basically mislabeled shochu has been sold all across the United States. Thanks to California for the past 20 years and American consumers are confused. And unfortunately, I've also seen some of these big makers selling the same labels, the same soju mislabeled soju. Uh, labels into Europe as well. Yeah, it's it's pervasive. I mean, once you've got the bottle size, the fill standards and the label design in English, you're going to sell anywhere you can sell English language product. And therefore, you end up with these labels with soju. And in fairness, I, I'm actually surprised more spirits makers from other countries didn't make the same leap. Yeah. California is an absolute, absolutely massive market. It represents nearly 15% of US economic output. And it's just behind Germany uh, for the fourth largest economy on earth. If it was its own country, California would be the number five by GDP. There's just huge incentives to sell products in California. It is. It is. That's a that's a very good point. It is quite surprising that other uh, products haven't, or other individual manufacturers haven't taken advantage of that. Um, I think if that did happen, I'm kind of sad that it hasn't, because then that would have actually 
maybe push the needle far enough in terms of the consumer confusion and the fact that it's just lying. I mean, sure. yeah, you, you, you can say, oh, well, you know, Japan and, and Korea, they're nearby. They're both clear spirits, whatever. Okay. Well, what if you had, what if you had a British spirit being bottled as soju and, you know, sold into the California market? Oh, wait, I think there is a company that does that, isn't there? Is there? <laughs> Oh yeah. Well, is it, it yeah, oh yeah. I don't think it's yeah, so, is it twenty four percent? I don't know what no, I think it's higher than that, but still. Um, you know, if that had started happening and everybody was importing stuff into California, just labeling it willy-nilly as soju, <laughs> then finally I think somebody would have had the reg on a regulatory basis, they would have had to step in and sorted things out. They would have said, Okay, this loophole is way too big. You're you're right on both counts. I absolutely agree with you that if that had happened, if other countries had, had jumped in and started using the same loophole, the, the law would have been reformed pretty quickly. And the other thing you're right about is is the shochu that shall not be mentioned. In fact, we should just call it a soju is bottled at 23%. <laughs> is it? Okay. There you go. Maybe they had that in mind. Oh, yep. geez. Yeah. And I mean, and let's think about the imported part of that equation, right? Yobo soju is made in upstate New York from uh, basically grape leaves. It's, it's essentially like a low-proof brandy. It's bottled at 23% alcohol, but it cannot legally be sold on a soft license in California because it's made in New York. And the founders actually live in California. They are. They are in... It, it, I forgot about that. That's true. <laughs> I mean, they actually... The, the, the couple who, who founded Yobo Soju, they, they lobbied the California State Assembly. They found a sponsor for this bill, a Korean-American gentleman. And he decided to withdraw the bill after a visit from uh, guess who? Oh, get uh, Jillo, bingo. Jeez, um, yeah, those guys, man. Sorry, Jillo is the Korean pronunciation of Jinro, J-I-N-R-O, which is one of the largest spirits manufacturers in the world. Oh yeah, those guys. I'm sure they they have carrots and sticks. Yeah. So you imagine you have a you have a an American couple constituents to the California State Assembly, and they are they're a startup company. They're like, you know small craft distillery, new brand, excited about selling their product in their home state. They've done all the work to find the find the source ingredients, come up with a recipe, make a actually quite quite nice tasting soju. Can't sell it in California on a soft license. Unbelievable. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> Love it and hate it and everything in between. Uh that's stupid law. Yeah, they need to they need to sort that thing out. But anyways, I mean it, it, you know in if I can summarize anyway, sure. the California soju law has the net effect of benefiting foreign spirits makers, right? Rest restricting sales from domestic spirits makers and confusing the hell out of consumers nationwide. And all at 24% ABV, which of course, again, is 1% less than the standard for shochu here in Japan where you and I live. And when you put it in those stark terms, it's the dumbest thing ever. Uh, one, not the dumbest. It's it. It's in the running for top ten dumb, though. <laughs> At least in spirits regulations, I think you're right. <laughs> the, yes. The, the uh, yeah, the one percent. It was really. I mean, obviously, it was Korean lobbyists who got the law passed originally. And realizing the Japanese domestic market shochu was almost always bottled at twenty five percent. Of course, they made it twenty four because Korean soju is almost bottled. At less than that, yeah, especially these days. Yeah, sure. That was an easy choice for the uh, for the Korean lobbyists, and of course the California Assembly people who 
were going along with it for whatever reason, uh, ended up, you know, just following whatever the, the, the lobbyists recommended and we end up with what we have. But now this really brings us to, to New York though, doesn't it? Because New York followed just yeah. a few years later with similar, uh, but even more restrictive legislation. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's go back to New York. Yeah. So in New York, it's the same 24% soju rule. Uh, it's been on the book since 2002, but it had to be made in Korea. So it was more restrictive. It couldn't just be imported product. Uh, so even if you saw soju on a shochu label, it was still only available in a hard liquor establishment. And I was told once by a member of the state liquor authority that if I found a restaurant or bar that had been selling shochu on a soft license for at least 12 months without being issued a citation, that would have de facto changed the rule because it wasn't being enforced. Hmm. So did you ever find a place? I knew a place that sold it, but it wasn't on the menu and it was only served to regular customers. Oh, it had to be, they had to be like stating publicly that they were, uh, I see. Yeah, it had to be advertised basically on the menu. Now, in only in preparation for this episode, did our friend and longtime denizen of Manhattan's finer Japanese drinking establishments, Justin Cobb, uh, tell me that a place called Chochin had shochu on the menu for years with a soft license. And if only I had known, perhaps this rule could have changed sooner. Jeez. Okay. Well, and that change, of course, is the new rule that Japanese shochu bottled at 24% or less can now be sold under a beer and wine license in New York State. So, great news? I think it's absolutely good news. It does not have to say soju on the label. It can now say shochu can now be a product of Japan. So this is a big step for the ability to sell shochu into bars and restaurants in New York that don't have hard licenses. And I, when I say bars, there are a lot of sake bars actually in New York City that, that operate on a soft license because sake can be sold on a soft license. So now right. suddenly those places can open up to some Japanese shochu, which is pretty cool. And there are so many great Japanese restaurants in New York that are too close to schools, churches, or synagogues that they can never qualify for a hard liquor license. You have to be a certain distance away. And if you've ever been to Manhattan, you realize nothing's ever very far away from a church, a school, or a synagogue. How are churches and synagogues part of that equation? I do. That is a, that's another silly law. Yeah. I mean, they, there's, there's alcohol served in church. Some. Yeah. Some churches for sure. Jeez. Yeah. But I guess soft, well, but that's wine, right? So that's soft liquor. <laughs> That's why a soft liquor license is okay. Yeah, but But can't we all just be adult about this for crying out loud? Jeez. Try to to grow up a little bit, America. Jeez, I'm crow. It's like, it's just the, you know, after you live for a while in, for instance, this part of the world, or or I live for a little while in Europe, and you just see how the, the general attitudes towards alcohol are so patently different in a good way. And it's just something that, you know, a country like ours can only aspire to. It's going to take generations to fix. But until you change the laws, you know, we're always going to have this childish, almost like, you know, mama knows best type of situation where like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. You can't drink alcohol. You can't have alcohol there. You can't do it in that way. That's dangerous. That's bad. That could influence people in the wrong way for crying out loud. It's still kind of a residual puritanism almost that's still on the books, you know, in a lot of states where, again, you have dry counties. You've got all of these pretty restrictive laws about where alcohol can be uh, sold and, and enjoyed. 
And, you know, it, it creates perverse incentives. I mean, you've got probably more binge drinking in parts of America yeah. than you do in many parts of Europe. Uh, I have European friends that as they grew up, they were drinking wine with meals from their early teens. And it was just, you'd had a glass of wine or two, enjoyed it with your meal. And that was it. It was not a big deal. It wasn't like, let's sneak away into the basement or to our friend's house when their parents are out of town and have a big keg party. Exactly. Right? So yeah, bonfires and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And it's just something that is so ingrained in in the culture that we grew up in that it did take, like I said, generations to shake loose and to change. But it really is. It doesn't have to be that way. And and also make no mistake, I would love to to spend more of the money spent on regulatory measures to combat alcoholism especially drunk driving and all of the other negative effects on society that al alcohol wreaks. I, I totally see that as a necessity, mm -hmm. but just making it difficult for consumers to have what they want when they want, that makes no sense to me. And I think it, it leads to a bunch of negative outcomes that are pretty easily avoidable. Agreed. I mean, al alcohol consumption in public in Japan is, it might be socially frowned on in some settings, but it's completely legal. And yet dr drunk, drunk driving is, is highly illegal, like 0% blood alcohol and level. Nobody drinks and drives here because it, yeah. it can destroy your entire life and your business. So yep. yeah, it's, so, I, I mean, there are ways to, there are ways to tweak the laws in other way, in other directions that can have the desired effect rather than just red taping everything. Yeah. Um, no doubt, no doubt. Boy, yeah. Anyway. Um, so I guess we're, we're on the oddball stuff, right? So, yep. you know, just to, just to button that, that last thing up about the, the whole New York law, which is brand spanking new, and it is going to have some, I believe, we believe very beneficial, uh, knock on effects in terms of what other States might do and that sort of thing. Um, but still one, one knock against it is that it is aping that 24% threshold mm -hmm. that was it originally put on the books by California. So while the fact that things are going to be labeled correctly now in New York state is definitely a good thing. I don't, I, I do wish it would go, we wish it would go further. And, you know, there's still more work to be done as you intimated earlier. Uh, this is a certainly a long-term battle for the hearts and minds of the American drinking public. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, no question. I think the getting it to 25% would, would make it more authentic for an experience of enjoying shochu in Japan. Uh, but being able to do it in New York, but you know, it's, it's a step in the right direction. And of course the TTB still hasn't recognized the category. So it's still going to have to have the statement on composition, uh, on the label, on which the is, front. yeah. So, uh, yeah. talking, talking about front versus back labels though, our friends at Nankai Shochu did something pretty clever, right? When you register your label with the TTB, you decide what's the front label and what's the back, right? Sure. Yeah. And soju is supposed to be on the front label in California. So they, when they submitted the paperwork to the TTB, they made the back label, the front label, and that had soju on it. And there's no soju on what is the actual front label. I hope I'm not right. getting them in trouble with this, but. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you are because like, what are they going to do if it's a wraparound label? How do you tell what the front and the back is? I mean, it's just, sure. it's a silly, silly specification. Yeah. But I, anyway, I thought that was a clever way to get, get compliant with the California laws and not, not be as confusing to consumers. Sure. Uh, are there any other any other weird laws, any other oddballs out there? You know, I, I went into this thinking I was going to uncover all these little nuances in, in state liquor laws that were open to spirits on soft licenses. And 
there's they're almost all silent. Almost every state is silent. In New Jersey, there's been a push in Bergen County in particular to codify soju for a soft license because that's a large Korean community. Um, but I think the weirdest goes to Washington State. They published guidance that soju can be served as bottle service in bars or restaurants that have a full liquor license, that have a hard license. Wait, <laughs> bottle service? That's <laughs> the bottle. Oh, wow. But huh? no, 375, the three, 375 milliliter bottle. That's right. In fact, the, the 375 ml is the only size allowed for bottle service in Washington State. Oh, for fuck's sake. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, I was oh, really, wow. really surprised by that. I did uh, not. Uh, today I learned. Yeah, one of the first states to legalize marijuana only allows soju bottle service in 375s. Even better, the rule states that if the customer doesn't finish the bottle, the customer themselves are allowed to put the cap back on and take it home with them. <laughs> oh well okay um are they allowed to drive home as well geez that's pretty impressive of course they are okay. it's the united states yeah right <laughs> um okay well hey you know this is this is this brings me back to one of our um one thing that steven and i get to answer a lot of questions about here in japan is what's the, how does it work in this state how does it work in that state how does it work in this other state the United States, in terms of liquor laws, is 50 individual countries, basically. They all have their own way of doing shit, and they don't like to compete with each other. There are some restrictions against interstate, you know, transportation of the beverages. You can sell online into this state, but you can't sell into that one. It's ridiculous. And it doesn't do the consumer any favors. So they the the various organizations, the companies, the lobbyists will always argue that it's in the consumer's best interest. It is not. Um, the consumer's choice is being curtailed. Prices are being maintained. And the most powerful uh, hub of all of this is the distribution companies, which basically control all the levers and have their, their fingers on all the scales. So, you know, it's a it's just a mess. And I know there are much more important things happening in the world right now, and there probably always will be. But don't be afraid to mention this to your representative that, you know, we need to deregulate this stuff because it's just not fair. Yeah, I mean, the system is what it is, and I, I don't see it going away anytime soon. But there are certainly it is not going to. Yeah, there are tweaks to the system that can uh, improve consumer choice and improve uh, options when when dining out and that sort of thing and home delivery as well. Uh, you know, there should be uh, pretty simple mechanisms to make all those things happen more seamlessly. And of course, right, we always right. we always encourage responsible drinking, right? We really appreciate these beverage traditions and we want people to be able to enjoy them. And these things that restrict, again, consumer choice, I think are, are problematic in our eyes. Of course, balancing, as Christopher said, all of the the negative effects of alcohol consumption when it's not moderate. You know, we do need to to be cognizant of that, but I'm not sure that some of these rules as they're put into place really uh, fit that. I guess this is our most overtly political episode, and I apologize for those who try to avoid politics. <laughs> we'll, we'll go back to regular programming soon. Everything's political at, at some level. Um, so, yeah. Anyways, I mean, I think we should just Focus on good drinks from here on out. Are you sipping on anything? Yeah, actually, uh, 
inspired by this episode, I'm sip, sipping on the Rakuen Yamato Zakura. Oh, okay. Which was the collaboration between myself and Tekkan. This is a 2021 Rakuen bottle. And we specifically bottled it at 24% with shochu on the label and soju nowhere to be found as a middle finger to California. So I just wanted to shout out to Tekkan for playing around with my little American joke. <laughs> nice. I'm actually drinking an Awamori that's bottled lower than usual. It's bottled at 25. 25 is low for Awamori. Most Awamori is bottled. Standard is 30% ABV. And I'm drinking the the winter Awamori from Kamimura um, in Okinawa. And it's part of a four, four bottle series. There's one for each season. Uh, the winter one's nice and robust. So I like to like to sip on that it's, one. It's, Ju- it's July, Chris. It's like Christmas in July. <laughs> well, it, it, we have people listening in Australia and stuff. Ah, fair. Good stuff. This is fun. Um, we got to roll up our sleeves, rant a little bit, take the gloves off. We don't do that yeah. that often. No, but, it's uh, good to uh, yeah vent a little bit. Sure. And uh, thank you all out there very much for listening. And if you have not already done so, then please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you enjoy listening. It really helps others to find the show. I can't stress that enough. And please, of course, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram if you have any ideas ideas, show notes, whatever you want to do to comment, join the conversation. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. How about you, Stephen? As always, I'm at Japan Distilled on Twitter and Instagram. Also, please check out our website, japandistilled.com for the show notes on this and every episode. And also, please tune in to our weekly Japan Distilled Show Tuesday, every Tuesday evening, 9 p.m. daylight savings time, Eastern daylight savings time in the United States and 10 a.m. Wednesday here in Japan. And of course, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon. If you haven't done so already, that can be found at patreon.com slash Japan Distilled. From both of us here in Japan to all of you out there all around the world, a very hearty and heartfelt kanpai. Kanpai. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Time's up, I'm